0: Hey, what's up, Zunar? How are you doing today? I'm doing well yourself. I'm actually uh, doing well too. Like, even though there's a lot of work that has been going on during school, I, uh, I've managed to, you know, get better at time management and then maybe get back to podcasting because I stopped it for a little bit because, you know, architecture work got a little bit busy.
1: How about you? Oh, yeah. School, school uh, gets you quite busy. Uh, currently, I'm um well, I'm not in school right now. My uh, program will be starting in August. Mm-hmm. Um, so for now, I'm kind of home, although still quite busy.
0: Gotcha. So the goal of this podcast is just to, you know, talk about stuff that usually people don't really talk about or like when you uh, go up to a person and they figure out that you're applying, they're going to be asking you a lot of questions, you know? So maybe this oh, podcast, yeah. is this a way for them to understand a little bit more what's as you see in the graphic behind the mask, you know? So if you don't mind sharing, like, what is your eye condition?
1: So I have a very rare eye condition. It's called Leber's congenital amaurosis. It affects about only 30,000 people in the whole world. Uh, not much is known about it. So it's considered a severe visual impairment and it's a retinal dystrophy. So as I get older, uh, I will lose my vision. That's how it's supposed to be at least.
0: We converse a little bit before it is and you did mention how this condition is actually a little bit complicated after uh, uh, some of the treatments that you have gotten. Like It certainly confused me, so if you don't mind explaining how uh, this visual impairment is actually one of the more confusing
1: ones out there. Yeah, so its representation is one that most people struggle to grasp uh, because I walk the line between a fully sighted person and a fully blind person. Which, would, which are complete opposites. They're juxtaposing one another. But that's the line I walk. So in some scenarios, I have equivalent sight to a normal sighted person. In other scenarios, I'm basically a blind person. I can't see anything. Uh, as far as treatments are concerned, uh, there was a recent treatment that came out. I believe 2018 was its, uh, was its premier date, and 2019 was the um, FDA approval date for it. And it's meant to try to basically recover whatever vision I've lost. It's supposed to be a roadblock that prevents it from getting worse. As I mentioned, um, it's supposed to make me go blind eventually as the retina ages. Uh, So it's supposed to stop that from happening. Gotcha. So yeah, I was one of the first hundred people in the world to be able to get a treatment like that. And so far um, Mm -hmm. there's no other treatment like it. it. It's completely new, completely new technology. No one's ever attempted anything like it before.
0: I mean, that's exciting. Like you have a treatment yeah. that helps you, you know, as a roadblock, you know, hopefully you, you didn't mention how like this disease is, uh, degenerative. So like you will go fully blind. So it's really exciting that there is a treatment out there that acts as like a roadblock for you to, yeah. you know, at least get some
1: vision back. Right. Yeah. So not only is it a roadblock, um, so it'll basically prevent my vision from getting worse. So what I have right now is what I'll keep for the rest of my life if if things go the way they are. Again, we don't have enough data to know if the, the treatment will continuously work. Um, as it is a genetic modification, it, it there's a risk that it just stops working. Uh, on, at this point, we're not sure how long it will last. But if, if the calculations are correct and if the theories pan out, I should be able to keep the vision I have right now for the rest of my life. Um, normally, uh, this treatment is given to people who are much more uh, have much more severe vision loss than me. With my disease, and normally by the age of 9, 10, you've already gone past the point of navigation. You can't navigate um, easily at all. Um, so it's meant for those type of people. And... From After talking to my doctor, from what I can gather, uh, those people have experienced approximately a 100 times increase in night vision. Um, Peripheral vision has increased as well. They've gotten better clarity, and they've also regained some color vision. Um, Me, I have very, very slight improvements. I already had very, very good eyes to begin with. Um, Well, as far as the disease goes, very good eyes for having that disease. Uh, So I didn't see that massive of a jump. Uh, an increase in brightness or colors but there is a slight increase so not only did it preserve my vision but it did give me a little bit back
0: gotcha so just for the listeners i feel like it would be a little bit uh, uh good for us to compare and contrast you know right. with my disease so to have a better understanding of like what's really exactly going on here mm-hmm. um For me personally i don't think there's a treatment out there yet for what i have which is libra's hereditary optic neuropathy uh it's still under the same family though but hopefully one day well when i go to the eye doctor uh when you do one of those tests i think my left eye can only see the big e and then my right eye can't even see the e and Mm -hmm. what is your experience with like you know doing one of those tests
1: um, so that's actually called a visual acuity test. I had one done actually around uh, like two or three days ago. Uh, my vision came back a lot worse than it used to be from before I got the treatment. And I'll talk about the little complications I've had in a, in a bit. Uh, so um, I have 2080 in one eye and 2100 in the other eye. Um, and 2200 is considered legally blind. So I'm well beyond the, like well uh, clear of the margin of uh, being legally blind. So I'm not legally blind by no means as far as visual acuity goes. So I I can see decently well. I used to, I believe before the treatment, I used to be around 20-50. Oh. So, I mean, technically my vision has gotten worse after the treatment, um, but the reason that is is because I developed cataracts uh, after the treatment, which was, um, I I think it was like a five or 10% chance that if you get the treatment done, you'll develop cataracts earlier. Um, earlier in life. Um, I didn't realize that earlier in life meant immediately afterwards. So I got the treatment and almost immediately uh, started developing cataracts. Uh, My left eye, which is my dominant eye, uh, is much, it's normally much, much more powerful than my right eye. Uh, But now my left eye has extremely bad cataracts to the point where now my right eye is better than my left eye, which if, if anyone knew me, they would say that that is a huge vision loss because my left eye was just astronomically powerful compared to my right eye. But now that the right eye is more powerful than the left eye, you can see how much you can tell how, how massive of a drop my right eye had in performance. Yet still, even with a huge cataract, I still get a higher visual acuity. So the 2080 is in the left eye. So even though I have a severe cataract, I can see clearer technically according to the tests.
0: So now, what what is cataracts? I'm not really familiar
1: with that. Um, so right, So um, you have the iris, which is the little colored part of your eye, and then you have the pupil, which is the center part of the eye where light enters. The iris constricts to allow light in and out of the pupil. So if you're in a very bright environment, the iris constricts. Right behind the pupil is the lens, and the lens is um, It's a convex shape. And it's designed to focus the light so that it hits the macula, which is the back, which is on your retina. So that's basically designed to focus that light onto your retina. And what cataract is, is it's a clouding of that lens. So there's um, some kind of buildup, uh, some kind of pigment buildup um, or protein buildup. If I'm, uh, it's a protein buildup in the lens that basically turns the lens white instead of clear. So that when light enters the iris, it's blocked, it doesn't go past the lens into the retina.
0: Oh, I think I, I've heard this from a good friend I have, and he did say Mm. how like the buildup is actually, um, like when light enters, like there's some kind of chemical reaction that happens in your eye. And usually Mm. you should get rid of those like when you sleep, but somehow you don't and they get stuck in your eyes. So they're technically quote unquote poisoning your
1: eye. Um, I'm not quite sure how uh, how accurate that is. Um, I'm not mm. an expert in eyeballs, but <laughs> I will say um, the cloud, the protein buildup in the re- uh, in the lens is actually quite common. Uh, most people, by the time they're fifty or sixty, will develop cataracts. That's just how it goes. It, it's a it's just a common thing. Uh, so cataract surgery is very very common. Very common. Um, but for okay. someone as young as me to develop cataracts is not unheard of it, it's happened before some people are born with cataracts uh, yet someone uh, but younger people getting cataracts is more of a rarity you don't see that very often uh, but what i'm the, the thing that i'm facing is i don't just have cataracts i have a retinal problem my retina is not working properly so i have two deficiencies in my eye not just one normal people if they have cataracts they can get a cataract surgery and um, they'll just they'll cut open the eye and they'll they'll like slip that lens out and put a new lens in. It's made of plastic, so it's not an organic lens, uh, and it's a plastic lens. And uh, it takes about ten five to ten minutes to do to do the surgery, uh, and then you're done. Is it LASIK? It's not LASIK. LASIK is is uh, is using a laser that goes through the pupil, and it's designed to fix okay. up the retina. So this is a, a cataract is an incision in the eye. They get a little knife and they cut the uh, the eye. And they they pull out the old lens and they put in the new lens.
0: Okay, that's really uh, insightful. I thought that, like, you know, I thought they were one and the same before that. That's actually like, it clears a lot of stuff out.
1: Yeah, LASIK is a type of laser surgery that uses a a laser to try to fix a retina. Uh, I I mean, LASIK can fix your vision in some places. Um, I believe, Mm -hmm. actually, if I'm not mistaken, I think the laser, I'm not an expert at, at LASIK, so it could be that it's. It could be that it's working on the retina, but I'm not sure if it's working on anything in between. I don't know if it really does anything to the lens or not, because the lens is supposed to be clear, so the laser should pass through it. Mm. So I'm not quite sure if the laser is designed to clean up the lens or fix up the shape of it. But I know that a laser, but uh, LASIK uses a laser, uh, not uh, like cutting your eyeball open.
0: Speaking of retinas, you didn't mention how like there's something uh, different with your retinas compared to people with normal eyeballs. I guess uh, mm-hmm. with my. I- with my eye condition, it's not anything to do with the actual structure of the eyeball. Rather, it's the optic nerve. It's like some kind of mm-hmm. mutated gene in there. So mm-hmm. what is going on in your retina?
1: So my retina is, uh, it has a, a problem with producing RPE-65 um, which basically, it, its it purpose is this. I'm going to try to explain it simply. So when light enters the eye, um, it hits a photoreceptor. Well, actually, it hits a chemical. And that chemical, it's, let's just say it's, it's like a 90 degree bend. And light, so the chemical, let's, let's draw it out this way. There's a chemical in our eye, and it's a perfectly straight line. When light hits that chemical, it bends. It bends that straight line into a 90 degree angle. So that 90 degree angle goes and fits perfectly in the photoreceptor, and it activates the photoreceptor. And the photoreceptor is like a gun. If you fire the trigger, it, it shoots off one bullet, but then you got to reset it. To reset it, you basically, that little piece that went into the photoreceptor in this in, in my scenario that little 90 90 degree piece it needs to be ripped off that photoreceptor and then bent back into a straight line so that another light, another photon can hit it and it bends back and basically it's an endless cycle are, are you following gotcha yeah mm-hmm. okay so the thing is so once light once light hits that little that little uh, i believe it's a protein or a gene or something I'm not quite exactly sure, an enzyme, maybe who knows. Um, once it hits it, it's bent, goes on to the photoreceptor. The thing that rips it off the photoreceptor is RPE65. So it rips it off, and then it will be reset. I do not have that ability. So what? Ha- my RPE65 doesn't function. So basically, uh, once, that, once it's bent and uh, my photoreceptor is activated, it can't turn off. It's like a gun that's triggers constantly pressed, And what will happen is as it's ha- as time progresses, the photoreceptor will end up dying. Oh. Basically, what's happening is slowly over time, my retina is dying uh, around the edges first, and then it's going to go to the center. Eventually, my whole retina will be dead, and I won't be able to see anymore. That's how it's supposed to go. So what the treatment is supposed to do, um, it's called Luxterna. It's constructed by Sparks Therapeutic. Uh, and it's it basically, it's a virus. Um, which has been mutated so that it cannot replicate yeah normal copy of rp65 gene so the gene they just took out a, uh, basically just it took a normal copy from a human and replicated that copy and put it inside that uh inside that virus and then they inject that into the retina and what happens is the retina is like oh look there's a new copy what what i'll do is i'll stop using the old copy the mutated copy and i'll just start using the new one so instead of Instead of the eyeball constantly producing the bad mutated copy, it starts producing the new, the new copy, which is the normal copy. And what that's supposed to do is since it's normal copy, it will prevent the photoreceptors from dying. And, you know, you'll be able to see, basically you won't lose your vision in the future. And some of the photoreceptors that are just about to die or like the ones that are very, very close to dying, it'll prevent those from dying, which is why it gives you maybe a little bit of vision increase. So instead of the photoreceptors fully dying, it lets them survive. Gotcha. So that's kind of the gist of it. It's a lot more complex. I'm not an expert on this. I mean, even researchers are just are trying to understand this probably. So don't quote me on a lot of this stuff. It's just a bit of knowledge that I've been able to accumulate from uh, a lot of reading and asking people around and asking doctors so that's kind of how it's supposed to work
0: well that's certainly very insightful and you know obviously more than i could gather it up myself you know uh certainly my vision came in really late like around it's been a little bit more than two and a half years and i think yours you were born with it right i was born with it okay so since i i know the feeling of you know having a vision that's degenerative and it it does not feel well right it's like every single day is a different Mm -hmm. day and uh, certainly having a vision that's stabilized is way better than having a vision that's degenerative right Uh, let's let's talk about what you see on a computer screen because for me i can zoom in and then see stuff but from talking to you uh, before this you said that you actually get uh, eye
1: streams, but you still can see little words. Yeah, so I can I can do computer work. Uh, I just I struggle with it since it's just it's just hard on my eyes. Uh, I don't like using Zoom Text or oh, it's called Jaws or something Jaws, like that. Yeah. I, like those zooming softwares Now I don't prefer using those. Um, as basically what it does, it zooms in the screen and then you just gotta keep scrolling side to side. And um, what it basically does, if you're not familiar with it. Uh, it gets the display and expands it so that you can only see a small portion of it. So your whole display only becomes a small little corner in actuality. And then as you move your mouse to the side of your screen, it scrolls that little uh, that sight window over and it shows you the rest of the screen. So basically, at one time, even if you could see everything, at one time your whole display will only display a small chunk of the display. So you won't be you won't ever be able to see the whole. Um, image being displayed, you'll only be able to see small chunks. And for me, I found that that's more of a struggle uh, since, I mean, I can never really get, I can't grasp a full image. Most things are have some kind of proportion. There's a top, a bottom, left, and right, and they're related, uh, especially in architecture and design. So if you zoom in and you can only see a small portion at one time and you can never see the image all at once, you know, to me, it's more of a loss than it is a gain which is why I prefer not using that. And then on-screen readers are always, uh, I mean, if you've used an on-screen reader, you know that they're a complete hassle because they'll they'll always read what you don't want them to read. And then it's always a struggle to get them to read what you want them to read. Exactly. Exactly.
0: I know that feeling too. It's like they read the date, Mm -hmm. they read literally everything. Like they read out every single letter, number in like a hyperlink. And you're like, no, I don't want that.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I've tried them several times. Uh, Read and Write Gold, uh, Zoom Text. I've, u- I've tried. There's some other ones I've completely forgot the name of those. But yeah, they, no, nah, I don't like using any assistive software, which apparently baffles people because, again, I'm considered blind in some aspects, and they would say, "Yeah, yeah, no, you should use these. Why don't you use them? Because you're you're like a perfect candidate for it." For me, it doesn't work. I gotta deal with it somehow.
0: Now, uh, what are some other activities, not like computer work that you're perfectly capable at? You know? like you said that uh, architecture, for example, so obviously there's a lot of design work that goes in it. and there are certain tools like you know using a saw or using a probably a um, uh, one of those press. So, like, what are th- yeah exactly? What
1: what are things that you can um, use? So, um, well, I can use a lot of power tools and a lot of fine equipment. Now, when I say I can do something equivalent to a blind uh, to a fully sighted person, I do I, I can do something equivalent, but not in the same manner. So, uh, my methods of doing things are slightly different. Yet, in the end, I'll achieve the same goal. Um, but I'm able to operate all sorts of power equipment. I do woodworking, uh, fine electronic work, soldering. Uh, I can do remodeling in a house very easily. Uh, Home electrical is one of my specialties. Lighting is another specialty of mine. Uh, So, again, uh, normally with someone with my level of visual impairment, most, most of the time you would assume you won't be able to do anything like that. Yet, I can do it equivalent to a person who has full sight.
0: Gotcha. You mentioned how soldering, like soldering, is a really intricate process, also with uh, electrical work. And I haven't really been doing those, but from my understanding and, you know, understanding how it kind of works, it's like pretty much a really intricate process. So what is the way that you do it that's a little bit different, slightly different, but it still achieves the same goals as a person with fully capable sight?
1: all right so um if you know anything about soldering uh solder uh, you solder by using an iron and a a thin wire called well solder uh basically it's the thickness of pencil lead so if you know pencil lead how you know how thin those are like mechanical pencil lead yeah that's how thin it is so you got to make sure you can direct that wire exactly where you want it to go um the way that i solder uh, is actually Completely the way that a normal person would solder. That's one of the things I do completely normally. You have a light, a fume extractor. Use a normal soldering iron. You heat the wire up exactly the way you a normal person would do it, and you solder the same way. Uh, So soldering is one of the things I do exactly like a normal person. Gotcha. Um, Another thing. Let's say let's say like I'm hanging a picture frame. Hmm. That's something that well most people okay great yeah I will grab a level. I'll put the level on the wall. I'll, I'll strike a line, drill a hole. Done. Uh, put a little anchor in. Well, my methods are a bit different. I can't really see a normal level easily. A bubble level, I mean, I can see it if I try, but oftentimes it's just much harder. So I have to get specialty equipment in in the form of a digital level. So digital level, big display, gives me the numbers. Stick that on the wall, um, and it'll just tell me, yeah, you're at zero degrees, you're perfectly level. Perfect. Then, um, well, it depends on how many things I'm hanging. If it's one thing, um, I'll first find out if there's a stud or not with a stud finder and it'll be able to tell me if there's a stud or not um, I normally would just get a pencil wherever it needs to go make sure the dot is make sure everything's level uh, make a line or make a dot uh, get a drill bit um, and a drill drill a hole out uh, put whatever appropriate fastener it is either a hook a sawtooth hanger a drywall anchor a toggle bolt or whatever I need to put in and then hang it up gosh i recently actually yesterday actually the day before i uh hung a tv oh. a 55 uh, a 50 inch tv on a base amount so,
0: oh that's exciting
1: yeah, that's the process i use
0: that is exciting like it, big tv <laughs> so i'm just trying to like understand a little bit uh like is it a matter of depth perception that makes it harder for you uh, to do that
1: so i have a um, I definitely do not have good depth perception. I have some, uh, but it's it's very poor. Gotcha. Um, yet, yet I've le- I've managed to, um, I managed to see past it. Uh, so normally, I mean, I can see depth, but not in the normal way a person sees it. Uh, normally, if a, if a person and audience, you can try this, uh, close an eye. Uh, if you close a single eye, you'll lose your depth perception. And the reason humans have two eyes is to compare different images so that your brain can calculate depth. So if you lose an eye, you don't have depth perception. Uh, So you can try that out and you'll notice a difference. You won't be able to tell how far objects are. For me, even if I have both my eyes open or an eye closed, everything's the same. So even with one eye, I can still tell depth, but I don't use normal depth perception. I use context clues around that. So Angles. I can tell if something's farther away, it's smaller, but also its angle is much more is much steeper. So if it has a steeper uh, angle and it's uh, smaller, most likely it's far away. Um, I can also draw a horizontal line. Um, it just it just in my head, like a horizontal line, um, and I can compare the sizes of objects that hit on that horizontal line. And if I know, for example, two chairs, I know that they're, they're identical chairs. One chair is big. One chair is small. I know, oh, yeah, the small chair is farther away. And then I, after as experienced, since I've lived, lived with this my whole life, I can just tell, oh, yeah, if it's this small, it's exactly 10 feet away. Uh, and that's just that just comes with experience. So I use context clues to be able to figure out depth. And one of the biggest things I used to struggle with um, when I was younger is telling if someone's walking towards me or walking away from me. I can't tell that normally. If I look at a person, I won't be able to tell if they're walking uh, uh, towards me or away from me, but I found a way around that as well. Oh, okay.
0: Now that you mention it, I've always thought that I had like, you know, bad, pers- bad death perception, not like, not like none at all. But now that you mention it, mm-hmm. I do also have that problem where like, I would be down in my hall and I'm dorm. And then I would think that let's say a friend, he like that day, let's say he's wearing white, but it turns out there's another person, mm-hmm. but they're actually walking uh, away from me. And I would think like, why is my friend walking away from me? Like, And then after, let's say, five seconds, they get smaller, and I was like, oh, they're walking away from me, not walking towards me. And I do get that problem yeah. really frequently.
1: Now, the way that I do it is actually um, the technique that I use, there's, def- there's different techniques, but it actually depends on the floor, uh, funny enough. I draw a line on the floor and I watch the person's feet. If their feet cross that line, so it, they have a horizontal line and the feet cross the line and they're going lower, so that their feet are going below that line, they're walking towards me. But if their feet are going above that horizontal line that I drew, they're going away from me. And that's simple perspective. It's, yeah. it's how angles would normally work. So it depends, if I have like a linoleum floor or tile floor, it's reflective. So what I will do is to, in order to draw that line, what I'll actually see is a reflection of a light bulb on the floor. So after I find a light bulb on the ceiling, I find a light bulb, on, uh, I find a reflection on the ground, I can calculate exactly where the floor is according to that uh, reflection. And then I'll be able to draw an accurate line depicting where the floor is. Now, it doesn't have to be perfectly accurate. I don't have to make that line exactly on the floor. In general, it just needs to be uh, towards the floor so that it's not in the middle of their body. Because if if the line's towards the middle of their body, they won't be able to, they won't go up uh, below that line or above the line. The only time this trick will work is if you draw that line towards the lower part of a human. Because if they're walking towards you, they will, um, they'll, they'll, it'll look like that they're going below the line. So they're walking, in the line, and uh, they keep going below the line. If they're walking away from you, they'll keep going above the line. That's the trick I use.
0: Yeah, that's actually actually a really good trick that you're using. Uh, I've always I've done art, and then they've taught me linear perspective, obviously two point perspective, all these different types of perspective that they have Mm -hmm. used to actually create more realistic, uh, landscapes. Uh, and then, you know, how, like you mentioned it, horizontal line, there's obviously a vanishing point. And what you said, like, Oh, you can't put that line in the middle of the body. That's actually really true because you have to have your line further away from the Mm -hmm. horizontal line to see a massive change in whatever they're doing. Because if you put it in a center, they're not going to reach that point until like, 100 meters and that's going to take you a long time to reach that point
1: yeah Yeah. exactly until they're completely up against you i I mean if if you point um a line if you put that line the horizontal line exactly in the middle of their body um and they're coming towards you the only other perspective you have you can still tell how far they are there's another trick you can use um which is their size if they're you can tell a normal person's frame is about uh Five ten five six ish. So you, you you know how a normal yeah. person, how high they are, how, how tall they are, how big their frame is. It's quite quite easy to know that. So if their frame is getting larger, well you know they're coming towards you. If they're going away from you, they're getting smaller. But that again, that's a trick um, that you would use um, if you put that line directly in the middle of them, which again, you wouldn't do that initially. Uh, so what you would What I do is, again, put that line to to the lowest point I can. Oftentimes, I'd either draw it on their ankles, so the line will be on their ankles and see if it goes up to their knees, or I'll draw that line before they even walk onto it. So it's just drawn in midair, and I'll see if they they cross that line or not. Um, But then I can also tell by distance. So I have two measures to tell me how far they are. Oftentimes, the line method is a lot more accurate. Since I don't have proper depth perception, 90% of the time, for, uh, the size differences I won't be able to tell um, fast enough so my reaction time will be much slower but it is a trick that I use I will use both of them in order to increase reaction time
0: gotcha that's really insightful you know I might use that technique once I get out of this room <laughs> um, I was thinking about when you were talking all about those depth perception and techniques that you use I was thinking what is depth perception in its core is it somehow the light is interacting with the object to form you know obviously angles i mean the object has angles to start off of but the light gives it a different shade or hue if you uh
1: um so the, the way that depth perception the mechanics behind it is well fundamental the reason humans have uh, humans have two eyes as i mentioned um so what happens is um you have an image which is completely flat um And most of the time, you can't tell how far away it is because you have only an exact flat reference of it. Even though there's light hitting it, only one flat reference, Um, and that's with one eye. Now, humans have two eyes. And if you notice that they have a distance apart. They're they're a decent distance apart. And the reason that distance is is because each eye will actually see a very slightly different image. So your right eye and your left eye, their images, even if you're looking at the exact same object, that object to both eyes will be very slightly different. And what happens is when your brain processes that, it sees that difference. So it says, okay, how much of a difference is it? And from that difference, it calculates how far it is. So it calculates, again, for your experience, you need to know, like obviously when you're young, you have no idea what this is. As you're older and as you develop um, into a kid and then into adult, obviously your brain will adapt and basically figure out what each thing means so after it compares the images your brain will say oh yeah so there's a, there's a big difference or a small difference or here's a difference i see oh this is how how far away this object is or this is how close it is and that's something that it does instantly that uh, you, you don't you're not conscious of it it just happens immediately
0: yeah your body is really amazing that aspect yeah let's switch gears a little bit uh you mentioned architecture mm-hmm. obviously i'm also studying architecture and it's mm-hmm. great to meet another person that's really interested in architecture because there's not a lot of people that are like us visually impaired or even blind that are in mm-hmm. architecture in general. And, mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned before our conversation that there are only, in fact, two people in the whole world that are fully blind. Like they don't have eyesight at all mm-hmm. that are actually in architecture mm-hmm. in the architecture field, uh, from the time that I've yes. sp- spoken to Chris, Downey, and Mm uh by architect he's one of them uh he said that the other person that he kind of knows from spain he's uh Mm -hmm. like last time he's spoken to him like after he got his phd or masters from like a university there but he's not exactly Mm -hmm. uh, sure if he's practicing or not but chris Downey is the one that is practicing for sure so my -hmm. question is what really got you interested in architecture
1: all right so and architecture in general is an extremely uh, broad field in the engineering world or the whole STEM category. It has, it's the biggest umbrella. So for example, to become a mechanical engineer, there's one path. Here's you got to do A, B, C, D, you're a mechanical engineer. Architecture there's really not a set path. You can do a huge amount of different things and still technically become an architect. Um, and The person that I am, I really don't like doing one thing repeatedly over and over again. I have a lot of interests. I want to do all sorts of different things, and I want to design, build, and create different things. And uh, to allow me to do that, um, architecture is still not the perfect match. But to this day, it's the closest one that I've found.
0: Gotcha. So So That's why... For sure. from my understanding architecture what you said is broad like you can have mm-hmm. a huge amount of expertise in a huge like a really broad field like you can uh know soldering for example and also know mm-hmm. uh really intricate physics details to
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh how windmill works or even like hospitals yep. right because all of that yep. really adds up and helps you design something that is beneficial for the wind wind farmer, for for example, the person in the Mm -hmm. hospital, the patient, or even um, Mm -hmm. the the warehouse, let's say, for the person that's working in soldering. So a lot of these stuff that you gain knowledge in general is really helpful for you to Mm -hmm. design.
1: And the word that I use for that is insight. If you have insight into a lot of different perspectives, when it comes down to the pen and paper, you'll have a better you'll have a better design i'm pretty sure you've seen that one you've seen some kind of project or some kind of object you like okay yeah so whoever designs it designed this clearly has no idea how to. Yeah. they just designed it for this for the for the heck of design and, and like i have a complaint this doesn't work that doesn't work there's this problem this problem this problem and it's, it's like yeah for example like let's say i'm using a bandsaw. Yeah, I want someone who knows how a bandsaw works, who's used a bandsaw before to design a proper bandsaw (laughs) because they're going to design it better than someone who's, hey, can you do me a favor, design a bandsaw for me in five minutes or ten minutes or whatever on a piece of paper and then figure out how to make it work. No, no matter what you do, if you use something, you have insight on that object or whatever you're doing, you will do it better than people who just do it for the heck of it.
0: Yeah. That is that is uh, something that I also want someone to know what they're doing before they <laughs> design whatever.
1: Yeah. One of the like like a big thing that I that I see is um I mean this is a very nitpick situation here. Um like exit signs. Have you ever on a on an extent they're like dark red. Yeah. They're supposed to be illuminated so you can see them. Yeah. Well here's something. Uh I can't see them. And I know that a lot of visually impaired people can't see them either because red is actually the weakest wavelength of visible light. Well, one of the weakest, wavelengths. there's other ones. But red is approaching one of the weakest wavelengths, which means a lot of people struggle seeing it. Now, I understand why it is red. I know the mechanics exactly the reason why it's red, of the colors and the entire science behind it. But to me, I mean, if it's an exit sign trying to help you get out I wish that they have dual colors. So you have a red one or maybe a one with green. Green is the preferable one that I go with. Um, I prefer green because it's – there's a lot of science behind it. I can get into it if you want me to. But I prefer green and some people prefer red. So having maybe a dual-colored sign so that people who can't see one color can see the other color.
0: Yeah, like I've – after I've gone blind – now I think about it, I don't think I've noticed the exit signs as much than before that. It's actually like, mm-hmm. like what, after you, what you said, like I haven't really been noticing those exit signs at all. And in fact, like I remember one time, uh, I was watching a horror movie with my friends, right? And at their dorm, they had these uh, light strips that go around the room. And mm-hmm. uh, they were s- switching through the colors, and then obviously the room was dark, you know, to- get the atmosphere going mm-hmm. so once they switch the original color they had on was like blue and then you can see fine mm-hmm. in blue but then once they switched to red the room got a lot darker like I was like thinking exactly why that happened after you provided me that explanation it makes so much more sense like how it's reaching mm-hmm. a weaker wavelength
1: uh, one, one thing about red I want to put a bit uh, thing in for hunting uh, people prefer red. Uh, it's because it doesn't mess um, with your uh, what is it? Your rods, the rods in your eyes. Cones control color, so you have three cones: red, uh, R G B, red, green, blue. Um, and then rods control brightness. So you know if you uh, what you know if you go to the doctor, they say yeah, sit in a dark room for 10, 15 minutes so that your eyes adjust to the darkness. Yeah, that's that's your rods adjusting to it. Red doesn't uh, affect them as much. So if you're in a, in a dark room and you turn on a white light and you immediately turn that white light off, guess what? you got to readjust your eyes. It'll take you forever to readjust. Well, most people can, and something that quick, it'll, it'll take them some time to readjust. With red, it won't mess with their eyes that much. So in hunting, they prefer using uh, red because they can see without having to mess with up their night vision. Same reason why pirates used to wear an eye patch on one eye, because when they go under, uh, when they go in the deck or under the ship, they can remove that eye patch, and their uh, one of their eyes is already adjusted for night vision.
0: Yeah, I, I remember like seeing something about that. That's when I saw that, like how pirates do, like why did, why they have an eye patch? Like, I was like, oh, I didn't know about that. You know, obviously there wasn't like a lot of light lighting fixtures or you know gas lamps that were available
1: to them. That's why. Um, that's that's why red light is again. It's used for low illumination. You were saying something about green beforehand.
0: Yeah. It, before we go there, is that why the uh, the primary color red are used for like those uh, you know those red dots? I think that's what they call. It. They put it on their gun to like focus like a laser, like focus on that target. Like it doesn't really distract I- the target, right?
1: Um. Yes and no. So lasers come in two primary colors these days, uh, red and green. Uh, Green lasers are actually really powerful. Uh, They're a more powerful laser. They're easier to see. Most people prefer green lasers over red lasers in the construction field and in general. The problem with green lasers is they take an enormous amount of power to run, and also the diodes are very difficult to manufacture, and they burn out very quickly. So basically, a green laser is a very, very premium thing. For example, let's say if we go to a laser level. I can get a red laser for eh, $30. If I want to go with the green laser, the next best best option is $200. Oh. That's the cheapest. So 30 bucks versus 200 yeah, if I want to go with a quality green laser, 600 and above, easily. A, a, a green laser, a rotary green laser, $1,200, $1,300, $1,400, easily. It's just because green lasers are very, very difficult to, uh, to work what with. What is the difference like, in price with a red laser, for example? Well, so red lasers, again, with guns, I'm not quite sure. I don't really know if they make green dot lasers for guns, but I just know that red lasers are the most common laser. It's just it's common, it's cheap to make, easy to run. Again, remember, red is the lowest wavelength. It's the least energy light. Well, if you have the least energy light, that means it takes the least energy to run it, which means you need a small battery. If you have a green laser, it's the highest energy light. It takes the most amount of power to run, which means you need a lot of power to run it, which also means a lot of power, a lot of heat.
0: Now, you've uh, dabbled a little bit into green, like the green color. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wait, you said it was the highest... Uh, uh like a most amount of energy to run it is that what you said
1: yeah so green well well in actuality uh it would be blue so uh, it's yeah. red yellows greens then goes to blues ultraviolets um and then you have gamma radiation so basically as as far as you go into le- the smaller wavelength in the electromagnetic magnetic field the more energy it is so gamma radiation super high energy yeah it will kill you mm-hmm. Um The green light is not as powerful as blue blue is still a little bit more powerful but the funny thing is, is green makes up approximately two-thirds of brightness uh level indication in, in the human eye so to determine brightness two-thirds of the brightness determination is done by green so the more green you have the brighter the image feels oh so i didn't know that now that's, the, that's a little trick. Samsung displays are very, very bright. yeah, They're the brightest displays. That's because they use a Pentel arrangement. They don't use red, green uh, red, green, blue pixels. So a pixels RGB, RGB, RGB. That's a pixel. They don't use that. They use red, green, blue, green, red, green, blue, green. Notice how there's, how there's an extra green. Mm-hmm. That extra green is what gives it brightness. Oh. is because the human eye determines about two-thirds of all brightness as green which means if you have a green light it's very very easy to see in fact it's the easiest color for humans to see green oh. so you can see how a green laser is much easier to see than a red laser same thing with an exit sign oh. if you have a green exit sign it's much easier to see than a red sign now there are big problem. there, there are problems that go back and forth uh, between going with green and going with red and that's with wavelengths. Uh, see, green can be blocked easily. Easily, hmm. it's because its wavelength is smaller. Let's—I forgot the nanometer scale. It means that dust particles or smoke particles in the air can block it technically a little bit easier. Um, red has a, a bigger wavelength, which means it takes a bigger amount to block it. For example, I'm gonna—I think you'll be able to get this. Uh, one of the biggest things in astronomy is the 21 centimeter uh, wave mark. So the 21 centimeter wavelength mark is a very important mark because it is what lets us know if a galaxy uh, or if like a, a galaxy or a cloud or dust cloud has any stars in it. And what 21 centimeter wavelength means is it takes an object 21 centimeters in diameter to block it. So 300 nanometers, it'll take an object 300 nanometers to block it. 21 centimeters, it'll take an object 21 centimeters to block it. So if you think about it, a dust particle being 21 centimeters big is not likely because it would be considered a rock by them. So blocking a 21 centimeter wavelength is very difficult. But blocking a really high, like 2,000 nanometer wavelength, if I I don't even know how far they go. I I could be completely wrong with the number with the smallest ones, but if you try to block a super small wavelength, it's very easy to block it. Now, smoke is particles, dust particles, smoke particles, dust particles, whatever particles in the air, which means if you have a small wavelength, it's much, it's much easier to block it than it is a, a bigger wavelength, which is why, since red has a bigger wavelength, they use red instead of blue, uh, instead of green gotcha and then like and then also other things about vision and if you have smoke it's it, there's other different things about it's it's easy to catch your eye will you know, pick it up all red yeah that's a standout color yeah, there's other reasons like psychological factors and stuff but that's just that's some of the technical reasons behind it yeah
0: like if i remember correctly from science class <laughs> uh <laughs> red is like towards the direction of radio radio waves and then like Purple is like towards gamma, what you say, gamma rays. And then when you say shorter, you're just meaning that the length between each um, trough, it's closer together, right? Yeah, it's closer. Exactly. So that's what you mean by it's shorter. It's not... Yes. Or, or smaller. It's not like it's shrinking or like scaled down.
1: It's just a shorter wavelength. Exactly. So you can you could Google up uh, the electromagnetic spectrum, and if you Google that, you'll see how the waves start out out super wide apart, and then they get smaller and smaller, and they get super super close. And when they get closer, you have a smaller wavelength. That's what that means. Uh, and again, the the simple fact is, again, if a smaller wavelength, it's more energy, but easier to block. You have a shorter wavelength, it's harder to block. Um, and um, it, it's harder to see as well. And that's also why, you know, 5G is, you know, you've you probably have hear, heard a lot about, oh, yeah, 5G spectrum or phones being much faster. <laughs> yeah. hey, the problem is that if you're in a room or you have a brick wall, you won't get signal. Even if you're in a normal room, your hand is enough to block the signal. Well, the reason is uh, it's 5G, which is which stands for Generation 5, not 5 gigahertz, so it's, it's the fifth generation. It's using a much smaller wavelength that can carry a lot more data. But because it's a smaller wavelength, it's very easy to block it, which means your hand is enough to block the signal. But something with like 4G, it's slower, but uses a small, or uses a bigger wavelength, a wider wavelength, which means it can go through brick, it can go through walls, windows. You see that? Yeah. So that's the reason why normal phones like the, the, the Note 20 Ultra or these new phones that are coming up with the 5G antennas, they have a lot more antennas around them. Five, sometimes six antennas, not just one. It's because if you're holding your phone, that's enough to block the antenna. So what they do is they put so many antennas in there that it's impossible, theoretically they're hoping that you won't grab your phone in a way that you'll block all the antennas at once. So at least one of the antennas will be able to pick up the signal.
0: Yeah, like it's not like you would use like two hands and that's the purpose behind and then like block all the antennas. Like if you were to block all your antennas, I think they're thinking it might be in your pocket and you're not using it. So there's no point of accessing 5G data. Yeah, I did see
1: a. I mean, yeah, I mean, you could, yeah, technically, it may I'm not quite. I believe it can go through your pocket, though. I believe, I believe 5G signals can go through your pocket, but again, that's the, the that's the limitation of wavelengths.
0: Yeah, I did see a video by Marquez Brownlee talking about this about 5G, how like it's mm-hmm. way faster. In fact, oh yeah, but it's just what you said, like a brick wall can just lock it and you can't use it.
1: Yeah. You have a tree in the way, a power line, even the smallest sort little of thing. You turn a corner, done, you lose signal. So that's the downside. That's the reason they're, the whole massive retrofit they're having throughout the world. It's, it's to add a ton of antennas so that theoretically you can't block the signal. So even if you turn a corner, well, there's two antennas. You turn, you're on one side of the corner, you have an antenna. You turn the corner, there's another antenna so that you're always in range. That's at least the hope that they're doing, which is why the massive infrastructure that they're trying to put in, um, well, it's so massive. That's the reason. Yeah, is to prevent that signal from being blocked, and that's all. The whole everything we're talking about is electromagnetic spectrum. All that includes in radio waves, sine wave, uh, uh microwaves, uh, gamma radiation, and even visible light. All of this is in one little package.
0: Yeah, I think I've heard. Uh, with 5G, obviously it's it's better when you're let's say uploading something, let's say a YouTube video, or you're downloading something mm-hmm. from, from the internet. You want to download yep. that stuff really quickly, and I think. If I remember correctly, if I, uh, from looking online, it said that they're trying to do a way where it's like you use the 5G when you're downloading or uploading, but you switch back to 4G when you're just scrolling on your screen or just surfing the web, like the more basic stuff. Mm-hmm.
1: Exactly. And that's just the whole reliability thing. It's, it's much easier to block a 5G signal, so might as well stick with 4G that... Is able to go through walls. Imagine you the. Imagine you download a you download an image, uh, you download a, let's say a movie. You walk into a like an airport, uh, uh, an airport hangar or something like that uh, or an airport terminal and done. You lose signal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean that's great and all. Like you managed to download your movie, but then you immediately lose your signal. Uh, that's, that's what's the point of that? Which is why we revert back to four fi- uh, G. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, going back to Samsung phones and screens, you uh, how like mm-hmm. green is the color uh, they use instead of the traditional, did you say
1: R, uh, RGB. Yeah. So red, green, blue, those are the primary colors of light. Um, red, yellow, blue are the primary colors of pigment. So, uh, if you have like paints and colors, red, yellow, blue, when it comes to light, it's red, green, blue.
0: Gotcha. Uh, you, is that like their screen there's, sh- they're not using pixels and they're doing something different there. Is it, is that why they named
1: their screen OLED? No, Um, so but there OLED stands for organic LED, Um, and it's basically there's. If you want me to delve into the chemistries behind it, I can. Uh, But in general, a normal pixel, a pixel basically is it's it's a dot of light that's designed to make any color. So if you want red, you have red. You want yellow, pink, orange. It's just a combination of different brightnesses. So if you want red, the green and blue turn off, and the red shines through. If you want green, the other uh, the red and blue turn off and you have green if you want yellow. I believe it's actually red and blue or red and green. It's just, a, it's basically different color combinations and brightnesses of the pixel. Now, Samsung, normal pixels, imagine this like a, the way that I would describe it, it's just three lines. You have a, a line of red, a line of green, a line of blue. And they're just next to each other in a little package, like a little cube, like a little square. And imagine that it's a little red, green, blue package. And you have millions of those on display. now each one of them control the brightness and uh, of their color, the little individual colors on there. And then you get a different color on the display. Um, Now what Samsung uses is they don't, a normal pixel is red, green, and blue. And then red, green, blue, red, green, blue, red, green, blue. It's an endless cycle until it's a million times. Samsung doesn't do that. They use red, green, blue, green, red, green, blue, green. So technically they have red, green, blue, but they have an extra green in there thrown in for brightness. Now, do you want me to go into OLEDs, uh, the difference in chemistries and stuff? Uh, yeah,
0: like now that I think more about it, I think I heard something where LEDs are, there's like a light thing that displays the, the pixels on the screen, while OLED is like light and controlling individual
1: pixels, right? So the difference is OLED, which stands for organic LED, um, it's a very thin display, and it uses organic particles, so organic com- organic stuff that uh, that's with phosphors and stuff uh, that's red, green, and blue. And what happens is every individual pixel, so red, green, in uh, Samsung, let's just call it red, green, blue, because some you can have OLED displays that are red, green, blue for the sake of simplicity. You have red, green, and blue. And then you have red, green, and blue. Red, green, and blue. Let's say you have three pixels OLED. It can control every individual pixel. So one pixel at a time they can control. Now, you have the counterpart, which is LCD, which stands for liquid crystal display. Now, it also has pixels. It also has red, green, blue pixels, but the pixels are differing from OLED. OLED produces their own light. So you have uh, red, green, blue particles, but they produce their own light. With an LCD display, you have red, green, blue particles, but they do not produce their own light. The light has to be uh, shown in through the back of the pixel, which is why you have a backlight. So that backlight shines through the red, green, blue layer, and that's what uh, shows color. With OLED, it's the pixel itself that produces the light.
0: Oh, so that's why the screens are thicker with LCDs versus OLED.
1: Exactly. You have you have to have a backlight, um, and you also have to have um, polarizing layers. So that's why if you want to go completely black, like you, let's say you want a black uh, background on an LCD you will never be able to get a black background. Because what happens is the, the pixels, they just, they, there's a polarizing layer. And if you know about polarizing, it's, it lets light through one way, but if you twist it, it, it blocks light. So what happens is it, it programs the pixels, that's sending electric current through it, and tells the pixels to turn black on an LCD. So the light is still behind the black. So, so what happens is you have what's called light bleed, where light goes around that pixel because the pixels aren't exactly side by side. There's, a little, there's like a microscopic, like you we'll never be able to see them. And I'm talking about billions of pixels on a small, like a smartphone display has millions upon billions of pixels. So this is, this is really, really small. So an LCD display, the pixels go black, but the backlight still shines through, which is why you'll get a very, very close black, but not perfect black with OLED For black, it just turns the pixel off. Since the pixel produces its own light, it's like a light bulb. If you turn the light bulb off, well, you have no light. If you have no light, well, you have perfect black, which is why when it comes to cinematography or cinematic video, a lot of people prefer OLED displays because they get pure black. Also, they have very, very nice colors. Now, the downside is they're not as bright as LCD. Now, LCD... Like for example, Samsung's QLED, which stands for Quantum Dot LED, are very very bright TVs. Now OLED can't be as bright is because well they're like light bulb, um, and light bulbs burn out. You know if a normal light bulb if it burn out, yeah. So if you if you get an OLED display and crank its brightness through the roof, well you'll just cook the pixels. The pixels will burn and die, and if they die, you get what's called blue pixel burning. Blue is the highest energy wavelength. Remember, it takes the most energy to run. It also produces the most heat. So the first pixel that will burn is the blue pixel, followed by green and red eventually. I mean, in extreme cases, you'll burn every single pixel in your display. With LCD, you don't have that. You have an LED backlight, but then you have a layer in front of it, which is the pixels, which means the pixels can never burn out. The backlight can burn out, but oftentimes they're built more robust because they can be... uh, and they won't burn out, which is why you could crank the brightness up on an, L- on an LCD TV without having any kind of pixel burn-in issue. Or an L- on an OLED TV, if you try to crank up the brightness or you have a really, really high-brightness TV, yeah, you'll start burning the display. And you can see it. Uh, if you look at old smartphones like Samsung's, Samsung especially, Samsung's the pioneer of OLED displays. If you look at Samsung's, you'll see like, the, like a ghost image of the keyboard or a ghost image of uh, some kind of text. And it's like, it's there, but not really there. And it's because the display has burned that image onto it permanently.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. So with smart TVs, like, when you have OLED, like, I've seen this in person. Like, it's way more dynamic, like, because the blacks are actually blacks. And, uh, like, there's all really a range there. And um, everything you said is, like, really insightful with um, how, like, LCDs works and everything like that and speaking of green you know you you did say how it's like two-thirds of what we recognize for light i mean humans Mm. like money and money is green (laughs) yeah there you go
1: (laughs) i mean brightness is determined uh, the human eye does determine brightness from green and again that's why if you want in my recommendation if you want a bright bright display bright tv go with the samsung they're thicker uh but they'll give you a bright display. Now, colors might not be the, oh, my God, they're popping out, and it's like I can touch it. It's not going to be absolutely perfect, but it's really, really close. It's, it's basically personal uh, personal preference. LG is my go-to brand for OLED. If you're going to go with OLED TVs, just go with an LG. LG is the second king of uh, – OLED panels, but they're the number one king of uh, large OLED panels. OLED panels are very, very difficult to produce, Mm. like very difficult to get a consistent OLED panel. We couldn't do that for years. One of the first tablets to, one of the first things to actually have a full OLED display was Samsung. And I believe it was the Tab, um, it was a Tab S. Like their tablet, right? Yeah, the, the Samsung Galaxy Tab S. I think that was the first tablet, first large screen OLED device. Because Samsung, again, Samsung was the, is the pioneer and the king of, L, of uh, OLED. So they were the ones to pioneer the larger OLEDs. Now LG has taken the range of large OLEDs. But when it comes to smartphone displays, Samsung's your number one company. In fact, even Apple uses Samsung displays. Yeah, I
0: heard that. Like how their new iPhones are actually using Samsung screens.
1: Yeah, it's because Samsung is just, they're the best at displays. You just cannot beat Samsung in their display uh, technology. Gotcha,
0: yeah. Well, oh, doubling back... To uh, architecture, so uh, we had a conversation before this. How uh, just trying to, uh, I guess, understand more like why you chose architecture, and then how I chose architecture. You know, for me, it was just, hmm. uh, just combining math and art, and also like I had a really broad interest in many different areas, and it is really uh fit in well to me. with art- architecture. So, what what was yours like? Like, what, what led you to architecture? Can you just describe the journey, let's say, like, education-wise or just interest in general?
1: So, um, mine was actually a process of elimination. That's how, that's how my journey in architecture began and actually ending very, very soon. Uh, basically, I tried – I knew I wanted to be an engineer from the beginning. I was, like, five. Like, I want to be an engineer. Done. So, uh, I got into college. Okay, I'm going to do civil engineering first from people that I've talked to. I'll go with civil engineering. Uh, decided not to go with that. It's, uh, it's, it's not what I wanted to do. So I went to mechanical engineering uh, next. Mechanical engineering also turned out to not be what I wanted to do because mechanical engineering is just basically sit in front of a computer, design things all day. You're doing mechanical stuff, cool, but it's mostly computer work. Um, and then after talking to Chris, uh, he put me in the path of architecture. Uh, I, I had architecture in my head. I'm like, yeah, architecture. That's a, It's not bad. Um, and then he was the one who's like, yeah, you should you should really pursue architecture. Um, and unfortunately, before I can even pursue it, I'm gonna be ending it. So, yeah, unfortunately, so it, it turns out that basically the likelihood of me being able to get an architectural degree is almost zero. Uh, so I'm still still in the fence about if I really do want to pursue a career that I have almost 0% chance of actually being able to even get my degree in.
0: Oh, is it because of like the huge amount of computer work that's
1: involved? Nope. It's just, it's, it's computer work, but also my eyes. Um, again, there are things that I can't do. There are things that I can do. And unfortunately, architecture requires a lot of things that I can't do. I mean, if we, if I, if I go to the, if I go to like work, let's say I'm an architect, a practicing architect, and I have a job. Yeah, I will succeed. I, I will be completely fine because there, the, the, a job environment is very different the problem is the education the education system is requiring so much in so many different aspects in order to, in order to get that architectural degree and unfortunately because of my visual impairment the likelihood of me being able to go through that education system and passing and like even be able to take the engineering exam is virtually impossible because there's no system built for people who are visually impaired they just don't basically if are visually impaired no one no one thinks you should become an architect. It's just they, they don't plan for it. There's no system in play, which means that everything is designed for a normal-sided person. So if I'm going to become an architect as visually impaired, I, I got to do it their way or there's no other way, technically, for the education system at least. And that's what I'm facing. Now, I can be the one to persevere and muscle my way through that system and try to make it happen, but the likelihood is that I'm not going to be able to bend an entire established system just to work for me. Unfortunately, that's how it appears to be. After talking to Chris, he confirmed my suspicions. And, uh, I mean, he put me in the past. that if you can do it, go for it. But just be aware that that's going to be a massive struggle. That's going to be a wall ahead of you.
0: He, so Yeah, he did say to me, too, like how it's a lot of time dedication and other stuff like that. Well, also, like, keep in mind, like, I know. I'm sure you know this, but for our listeners, Chris like he actually went blind, like really late in his life. Like,
1: yeah, he was an architect for 20 years, a practicing architect for 20 years, and then lost his vision.
0: Mm -hmm. So he got he went through architecture school, like where you do all the Mm -hmm. theoretical stuff, like drawing, computer work, and different stuff like that. Uh, He had vision to do all of that, and. I guess that's what makes it a little bit different where you have actually a blind person going through architecture school instead of a person that gone through it and then later on went blind you know like all the vocabulary he still has it so that's why he does a lot of consulting work uh well i'm in no way like discrediting it in a way but like the as you said like the likelihood of like a person blind going through architecture school is really really a uh blazing effort you know um
1: yeah i mean i've tried fighting my college um the college that i go to uh i'm not going to name it uh just for a sake uh it's a big college it's pretty it's a very very big college one of the biggest uh and even then i have fought my way through for years now and it's gone nowhere i've tried bending the system i've talked to administrators i've talked to virtually anyone i can and unfortunately i keep hitting the wall i just I, there's no way to tear it down uh and that's where at this point i've uh what is it four years of struggling and uh it's sort of amounted not to make not, not to turn this whole depressing thing or, t- or bring down the room or not but uh it's turned to nothing, basically. Five, four years of my life has been um, has amounted to nothing, because I keep trying to fight a system that is not able to be fought, basically. Mm-hmm. So, at this point, I mean, I can continue fighting. I have the strength to continue fighting, but I'm considering putting my efforts in a different uh, in, in a different location and doing something else. Maybe go to real estate or business or do something else that I you know can do instead of wasting my time continuously fighting do something and you know start my life properly
0: gotcha and uh for our listeners and listening if you count on your finger he said four years that means that he started college when he was after eighth grade
1: right yeah i i was i finished eighth grade and went to college so i mean uh, yeah i i started quite a bit i mean that's actually now approaching five years now. But again, I was in college for the past year because of all surgeries and stuff. Um, And just, yeah. yeah. So because of that, I don't really count that. But I mean, I, I I gave it my absolute best shot. I tried every single trick up my sleeve. I've gone to the board of education. I've gone to uh, uh, what is it? Visual counselors, the state, I literally gone to the state and they provided me with equipment, um, some hefty equipment as well. Like I've, I've tried solutions ranging four or $5,000 uh, to try to, to try to bend the brand the system, to try to make things work. And even then it's not working out.
0: Yeah. This is like the more darker side of, uh, I guess being blind. Like there are a lot of different things that, yeah. uh, like if you were like normally sighted, you wouldn't not normally sighted, but just had like uh vision that wasn't legally blind. You wouldn't expect that there would be so many roadblocks or, along the way. So that's why, uh, one of the first thing that I heard when, after I went blind was that you got to self advocate, but sometimes that is, uh, it's really tough,
1: like it's really tough. I mean, self-advocation is uh, you can, you, you know, this, I'm, I know, you know, this, it doesn't always work no matter how hard you mm-hmm. try. There'll be people who think, oh, yeah, no, I understand. I know this better than you do. And unfortunately, they just don't. And unfortunately, I've also found that sometimes, I mean, even I don't know the extent of something I can do. For my disease, I can walk into a room and I have no idea if I'll build a C or not. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea if I can do something or not. Um, and sometimes I can wake up in one day, uh, I can wake up a day and like, you know what? My, I can't see today. I, I just, my, my eyes are not working today. And the next day I'm like, oh man, I can see everything super clearly. Yeah. But again, people expect that. Yeah. You should know exactly what you need. You should know exactly how things should work. So there's no flexibility,
0: mm-hmm.
1: unfortunately. And I'm pretty sure you've experienced oh, that. Yeah.
0: It really goes back to, you know, what, what we said before with the, you know, if you were to design a, what do you say, a press, a press drill or a press, like you, you want someone that knows how to design it to, you know, design it for yeah. you. And that really goes into like what we're talking about here again.
1: Um, well, I was going to say just an example that that came to mind is um, in, uh, in chemistry lab, uh, I was basically I I was in another class, and I dropped out of that. It was like the first week. I dropped out of that class and went into a chemistry lab because I had to do that. Um, And uh, I walked. I I told the 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 visual department. So the sorry, the the disabilities disabilities department, so the head of them. I talked to them. Okay, here's my concern. I I'm not. I don't know if I can see in there. we're We're gonna be dealing with dangerous chemicals, and I gave them the whole nine yards. And I mean, I I've been there for years now, so they they already know this. I walk into the lab, and they had nothing in place, no preparation. I'm like, Okay, and um, I'm like, I can't see anything in this lab, and you want me to deal with like hydrochloric acid, and I, I can't even see. So let's say I spill acid somewhere, what am I supposed to do? Um, and they're like, No, no, you, you need to be able to figure it out. You, you need to be able to do. It. What, what what do you mean? They said, Well, you what this is your fault. I'm like, How is this my fault that I can't do something? And they said, You should have scouted out the lab two weeks beforehand, and then told us exactly what you need. And I'm just like, okay, so two weeks before lab, well, we're doing nothing. So lab is just closed. This is a closed place. I can't see. We're not dealing with chemicals then. So you want me to walk in there and then predict that, oh, yeah, in three to four weeks, I'm going to start seeing this exact thing. So make me an accommodation. And uh, they're like, yeah, you have to do that. I said, how? I-, I can't predict the future. I don't know if I can do something beforehand. And then like, yet. Yeah. No, and then like
0: teachers, like professors, are really stingy about not letting their—I um, uh, wouldn't say syllabus, but it's like their lesson plan. I've asked this before; they're they, they're really oh. reluctant on giving you their lesson plan to you because they just don't want you to share it with everyone. But we're not sharing it with anyone; we just like use it to just to, you know what what you said, trying to be proactive before, beforehand. You know? Oh
1: yeah. I've had um, I've had some pretty pretty terrible experiences at college some very very bad professors um it, it, that chemistry lab by the way we, we had multiple meetings with the dean of the college um with the head of the department people that i knew and uh yeah i walked out of that lab simply saying have a great day and dropped out of that lab immediately yeah it's tough it, it, it got that bad I, I got the board of education involved as well i mean i did not i don't I no person should have to go through that level to involve a legal organization in order to fight for, in my in my opinion, a very reasonable accommodation. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, the prof- I mean, if you want me to go into details, I could tell you what happened. It's up to you. Uh, but no, I mean, professors. I mean, yeah, they don't want to give you lessons like notes or PowerPoint slides.
0: Wait, they don't give you those. Oh, good luck getting those. Oh. Well, they give you afterwards, yeah, like, but they never give it to you beforehand. That's my experience.
1: I mean, I mean, I'm good at convincing. I was at a, so a psychology professor. <laughs> Funnily enough, um, I'm like, hey, I, can I please have your notes ahead of time? Because I can't see your black or your, the little projector board easily. It'd be it'd be nice. And she's like, no, I can't give it to you. And this, I'm like, listen, I, I know, but I'm visually impaired, and I need this. And here's my documentation. Here it is. She's like, no, I, I just can't do it. I'm like, okay, I, I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Have a great day. I walked out of that lab and I have a, I have a friend in the disabilities uh, services department and I went to him. I'm like, Hey, look, but uh, can you give me a favor? Uh, can you, can, can you like get me the notes? Yeah. Less than an hour later, I had all the notes, all the PowerPoint slides. And, and after that, she's like, okay, every single time, I'm like, Oh, here are all the notes. I printed them out. I even enlarged them for you. Like, Thank you. I appreciate it. So, I mean, I'm good at convincing, um, and again, that's where self-advocacy comes in. You need to be stern. Do not shift. If someone says, go do it this way and you're uncomfortable, don't say, uh sure, 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 I'll try it. Like in chemistry lab, they said, Oh no, just try doing it. I'm like, oh, they're like no, 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 no. I'm not doing that. They're like, oh, go 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 grab your drawer of glass. I'm like okay a drawer of glass I, I, I'm, uh, let me go walk around a room with obstacles all around me and uh, let me go find a drawer that i can't see in and then let me go pick it up and and you know walk with it through to, through the entire classroom where there's people walking around and a room that i can't see in, and then put that down let's see how well that goes let's let's really see how well that goes
0: yeah class is clear like it sounds like there's like to a normal listener, it sounds like there's a lot of problems. There are a lot of problems. We're just trying to be proactive beforehand. Ooh, and there's yeah. so many different stuff that can go wrong, you know? And then when it goes yeah. wrong, they blame it on you. And it, <laughs> they're like, oh, why didn't you see it beforehand? Like foresee it? And then what, what? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: I mean, there are, there are a ton of, a ton of small struggles here and there. Um, like, uh, I mean, I can name just a couple examples. For me, like a normal worksheet, can't read a normal worksheet. Uh, blackboards, chalkboards, especially, huge problem. I have to use a video magnifier. Basically, it's a camera that points at uh, wherever I want, uh, and there's a display that displays it, does it broadcasts that video, live video to the display, and I can enhance it so I can have like black and white, or I can add color, I can zoom in and out, I can change like the yellow and green, basically whatever contrast I want. Chalkboards, huge problem. Because it's, I use black and white, so what it does is it turns anything that's light into white, anything that's slightly dark into black, so that it, it basically eliminates all shades in between. It's just pure black and white. You have a chalkboard, and you make a line on it, and if you erase it, you have a little bit of chalk dust left on that, on that chalkboard. Now, that chalk, the, that chalk dust is a little bit light, so what my camera sees is a pure white smear on the display. So mm-hmm. if you write over that, a normal human being will be able to see. Oh yeah, they just wrote over that. Yeah, but yet my camera will be like, nope, nope, I can't see anything. <laughs> so chalkboards for me are a huge problem. Same thing with whiteboards, reflections. If I see if I have a reflection on the on the whiteboard, well, I can't see anything because my the camera and my eyes are just blinded by that reflection, and nothing else is able to be well processed. So even the smallest things.
0: Gotcha. So uh, let's uh, switch our gears to something more, you know light tone like obviously dealing with the education positive let's let's
1: let's bring up the now.
0: positivity there you go so what are some things that you're working on like like a hobby or so like that you're really invested in you know like what something that you are working on like let's say designing or whatever you're doing that are really getting you you know up in the morning thinking about that
1: all right so funnily enough uh remodeling uh that's something that i'm focusing on quite a bit um we got a house a new house and uh, i've been just working on that um and for that designing like a different thing so we we need lighting in that house and uh so i mean i could just put like a normal light bulb and screw it in but i can't see in a normal light bulb i need a lot more light than normal so i i'm like designing different fixtures and different uh things that will look beautiful in the house as well so like a handmade wooden fixture uh, but will be very very functional very effective um other things are just uh i'm not really for now they've given they, they've been given the back seat um just different prototypes on different designs well not prototypes yet but different designs uh, i'm making uh, well designing a suit of armor uh kind of like iron man but not quite like iron man uh there's there's just basically just a there's a lot of small little things that I'm constantly working on. For now, the biggest thing that's that I'm focusing on is uh again lighting and different fixtures and different things and accoutrement that I can add to a house to you know make it a home.
0: Okay, so now like I, okay, I've since you know I'm an architecture, I know that like the contractors, not the architects, the contractors. Uh, even not like the interior design, just the contractors. When they put in light fixtures, they try to go with the cheapest options possible. That's why you get those boob lights. You know what those are? Just like a half dome light fixture that are slapped in the ceiling. It's like some people are just furious about it. Just, like, <laughs> there's a following of people who just hate it, absolutely hate it because of how ugly it is and there are other people yeah. they're like "Well, it's cheap and you know just slap it on there
1: <laughs> yeah i mean i we had a contractor come in our house and like okay we have a, a, a our living room um our house was built actually pretty recently uh, our main house it was built pretty recently but uh, i mean for whatever reason they didn't install lighting like there's no electrical in the ceiling at all oh. so i mean there's nothing so uh, we got a, we had a contractor come over I'm like okay so how much would it be to put lighting in He's like oh yeah we I mean like uh thirteen thousand dollars and uh, that's only what is it? I think twenty lights in total, and uh, those are can lights. The little, you know, those little circles you cut in the ceiling yeah, a little bulb yeah, in there. Yeah, the like light. Yeah, yeah. So like, yeah, twelve to thirteen thousand dollars for that. That's expensive. And yeah, so he brought the bulbs, and I uh, we, we told him like, okay, look, my, my brother, my brother has the same disability as me, so I'm like, look, we need a lot more light. Like for example, you you need uh, like fifty lumens to see. Yeah, we need a thousand. So we need a we need a lot more light to be able to see. Uh, so can you like do your research and find some bright lights? He brought in like twenty seven hundred K lights, which are very very. If you know anything about color temperature, they're very yellow. I can't see in yellow light. I need white light. Uh, same with same with my brother. So he brought yellow light, and uh, I think he was like four hundred lumen fixture, and just I'm like, what did you bring? Like, oh yeah, we're gonna put this up. I'm like, okay, no, 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 no. We're not doing this. And the guy had no idea what he was doing. So before he even began his work, we're like, no, we're we're not doing this. We're not we're not proceeding with this. Um, I was 18 by by that time, and I decided to take up the challenge myself. And uh I installed, well, a lot of lights uh, in our living room I put 18 in the living room 12 in our study room I put 14 in our dining room uh, in our uh, dining room I put 12 in the kitchen f- uh, five in the soffit f- uh, six upstairs eight in one bedroom and eight in another
0: that's a lot of like- I don't know
1: what that's, like. that's a lot yeah and I got all that done. Yeah, I mean, the initial run, I mean, all this cost, uh, this all cost me about $2,000. Oh, he was charging. Now he was doing 20 lights for 12,000. Charging. He He was doing 20 lights for 12,000. And in one room alone, I put 18. 18 plus 12, that's 30. Yeah. Plus, Plus 14 plus 12. I mean, and I used super high powered bulbs. Um, I, one of my other specialties is like bulb technologies, lighting and stuff. Uh, for me, I'm very specific with the type of lights I need. Uh, normal lights just won't won't do it. I need a very even beam pattern. I also need a specific color temperature as well. Um, Roth, my eyes just won't work properly. Like things just won't. I won't be able to see things properly. So I need to have a very specific color temperature, um, and I also need uh, a decent bit of brightness and also a field of light. It needs to be a very even light field. So I know the mechanics behind all of it—the entire thing about how to space lights out and what bulbs to use and everything. So I managed to do it accordingly and made it functional so that I can see in our house properly. Same thing with my brother; so he can see as well, and we can navigate pretty well. Yeah. Now, anyone who comes into our house will say you have a lot of light, but they always say that's a good job. It's very even, and it's—it's it's because of a human psychology. It, it, it's a lot of psychology involved into in lighting which is another thing about architecture going back to architecture is you can be a master of lighting uh, Chris Downey mentioned that he knows a, a friend who is a professional architect in lighting oh yeah he's just he specializes in lighting yeah which is I you do an architect but all you do is your specialty in, in lighting and that's one thing is you know I, I made myself basically I wouldn't call myself a perfect expert but I'd say I'm very I'm decently knowledgeable in lighting so that I can, you know, do what I needed to get done. Yeah. Lighting
0: is a, a, uh, I, like a bustling field. Like people need lighting. Like you, you're certainly oh, yeah. going to get work for sure. Uh, people need light. Uh, and
1: then. Oh yeah. People, uh, yeah. People need light. That's a good line.
0: <laughs> people need light. Uh, and then
1: yeah, just th-
0: for the listeners, like what is it, the normal amount of light fixtures or lights? that you need in a bedroom for example or in the or the living room
1: so um actually i wouldn't put it that way the the metric that i go with is approximately 75 lumens per square foot so basically let's say you have a room which is 10 by 10 it's a, a 10 foot by 10 foot you have um what is that 100 square feet mm-hmm. yeah 100 square feet and you have a hundred lumen bulb well we have a hundred square feet a hundred lumens that's one lumen per foot per square foot I need approximately 70 now most people are fine with one lumen or two lumens per square foot so like a 200 lumen bulb most people are able to see that I need uh, a lot more than that uh, so my our rooms average approximately 74 ish lumens Uh for the living room and actually our study room, I upped that brightness up. I used some higher-powered bulbs, and I put that to 100 lumens per foot, per square foot. Uh, my shop uh, downstairs uh, where I, I do all my building and I have all my tools and everything, uh, that is around almost 200 lumens per square foot, oh. which is, in any person's per, uh, perspective, it's retina piercing. If, if any other person goes down there, their eyes will burn from the amount of light, that is. But for me, I need that much light.
0: Yeah, so a lot of green.
1: Yeah, I mean that's that's the metric I go with. Now, a normal person, I'd say, if you want a like a if you look at like a mansion or a nice, beautifully lit home, and like okay, oh, yeah, that's a beautiful home. Approximately, I'd say around ten lumens per square foot, ten to fifteen lumens. That will give you a nice bright room, and it will give you a very nice color. Uh, it will, nice uh, layout. Uh, light. So the lights will be laid out in a pattern that it's, it's appealing and also color temperature wise i use about 5000k uh which is white uh, considered whiter light and the super white light is 6500k but that's blue in many people's opinion you don't want to use that no home uses 6500k 5000k light is the bluest that most people would ever go 2700k is incandescent so if you look at like an incandescent light bulb, mm-hmm. around 22,000 k approximately is an incandescent light bulb 2700k yeah, it's a bit better. If you go to any kind of shopping store, approximately 5,000.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, like, so thinking back to what you said with the guy installing your lights, like, he really was like scamming you or something. And this reminds me, I mean, of like, do you know Lisa Guerrero from Inside Edition? You know how she like sets up these guys, like the plumbers, the electricians, and they would like just tap it a little bit be there for an hour, smoke a cigarette, and come out like, oh yeah, you have a uh, breaker that broke down or whatever. Whatever, I switched it out and everything like that. And it had like cameras just looking at what they're doing. And she'd be like, oh, this yeah. is Lisa Guerrero from Inside the Edition. What were you doing down there? And they're like, hey, get on my face, please get on. <laughs> like, I feel like it's like that sort of situation. I mean,
1: I'm gonna be honest with you. If I were, to, if I were a contractor and someone said, hey, look, I wanna install 20 lights, I charge about ten thousand dollars as well because the amount of work required is incredible. Because the ceiling had no power. Remember, there's no wire running in it. And what you have, if you know, if you know anything about a house, there's no uh, the, where I installed it. There's no attic, so you can't just go up and run wiring. You have a, a, you have like you have a downstairs floor. You have a ceiling, and then if you walk up the stairs, you have it's the ceiling becomes the floor, and it's only eight inches thick. So, oh. in eight inches, you have the beams that support the house. You you can't crawl in eight inches to run wire. Yeah. So there's no way to run wire, and it requires actually a bit of demo before you can do it. So You got to cut holes in the ceiling. You got to drill through beams. You got to cut. I had to cut a hole in the wall and I had to run brand new Romex cabling. I got to put. Uh, I got to find a new line cable. I had a lot of work. In fact, it took me almost two days of constant work just to be able to get the electrical up there and getting the lights installed it's a lot of work oh yeah but it's also again it's considered a specialty thing this is something that i would not recommend a normal homeowner tackle like if you're if you're gonna tackle your own lighting in her home yeah know exactly what you're doing you better be a high level person because there's a million ways to mess up it is not easy work and i would i would highly recommend stick with a professional have them do it it is there's too much that can go wrong Luckily, I'm well versed in NEC, which stands for National Electricians Code. I'm well versed in NEC. I know my way around around electricity very, very well. I know my way around a house's construction. Again, this is where architecture comes into play. My interest in home construction. I know exactly how a house is built. I know the exact materials used. I know exactly what tools to use. I also have an extreme. I have a pretty specialty arsenal of specialty tools of all sorts of like 90-degree bits and specialty cutters yeah. and all sorts of stuff that you would normally never have. So I'm very well prepared to tackle a task like this. So if you're better to install lighting, either just do like a mounting fixture, you know, the little little dome lights you talked about, they just mount up into a yeah. ceiling. You, yeah, do that. Uh, or a ceiling <laughs> fan or do, do, yeah, don't install can lighting yourself. Light. <laughs> it's, there's too much to do.
0: And like right. homeowners, uh, they're you mentioned how there's a lot of different ways to mess up lighting and you can zap and die, <laughs>
1: get zapped and die. And, uh, unless, I mean, I've been shocked before. Oh. I, I, you won't die immediately. I've been shocked before several times. Um, but I mean, if you wire it incorrectly, you'll burn your house down. Oh yeah. I didn't think about that. That's true. I mean, the houses in America are made of wood and drywall. And if, if you know anything about wood and drywall, uh, they burn mm-hmm. pretty quickly. So I mean, electricity, it's not just that, like if you, if it's even things that like box fill calculations, if you even know what that is electrical boxes have a calculated thing where you have you can only have a certain amount of wires in a box and the reason is if you have too many wires well they'll produce heat and heat will, per- will cause the casing to melt which will cause a possible fire or arcing if you have arcing you have a fire well your house is burning down gotcha. so that's where NEC comes into play where what wires to use the gauge thickness how much to strip it what kind of wire connectors to use exact switch how what how many runs can you do all of that needs to be calculated
0: all of it. Now I understand which why. Is why I can. Yeah, electrical engineering. Like, that's one of the toughest engineering fields that you can go into. Now I understand why it's so yeah. tough.
1: Yeah, I mean, eng- electrical engineering, to me, electrical is, it, it's, I, I'm i not a commercial electrician. Like, I put me in, like, a, a pack, uh, like, tell me to, hey, just get, like, a transformer and start wiring a transformer up. No, no, no. I won't, I cannot do a transformer wire up, and I, I can't do, like, those super, uh, those big big towers, transfer power over. I I can't do any of that. No. What, what my specialty is home electrical. So residential Uh, from start to finish. So from the wires coming out the ground, like the two wires that supply power to the house to installing an electrical panel, to putting circuit breakers in, to putting outlets to running. I can do all of that. A to Z. Gotcha.
0: So we're nearing the end of our podcast. And, uh, yeah, it's been a, it's been a while. Yeah. Do you have any questions for me before we, uh, we sign off? Um.
1: No, I do not.
0: Okay. Um, well, let's uh end it there. And it was a pleasure speaking to you. I got a lot of different information, really insightful information, like from Korean, <laughs> oh, lighting, glad. electrical. It was a great conversation, and I'm sure our listeners would be happy uh, Happy to absorb all the knowledge. Yeah. And until next time.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, I would like to say one thing. Um, one small little thing that I uh, was going to mention and I forgot. Uh, even though I'm visually impaired, I don't use a cane. Even though I'm like, severely visually impaired, I don't use a cane. Uh, I actually instead use a flashlight. And people are like, okay, why do you use a flashlight? Well, to me, if I have enough light that's decent, well, I can see well enough. So why would I use a cane when I can just, you know, use a flashlight to be able to see better? So, I mean, that's one thing that I would also say is, you know, keep the light on you. Some people who are visually impaired, it doesn't mean that you have to use a cane. There are different methods. You can can just walk normally, which is what I do. Sometimes you can't even tell that I'm visually impaired. Sometimes I use a flashlight. So looks can be deceiving. That's one thing I can say.
0: Yep. People need light. All right. Well, it was great talking with you. You too.